welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. And I'm Molly O'Brien. And this is We Podicano, and our band could be your life miniseries. We're taking a journey through Michael Azred's Chronicle, the 1980s American underground rock scene, continuing today with Chapter 12, Mud Honey. We turn, finally, to the Pacific Northwest, where something new is brewing in Seattle. Their veterans of various bands in the local scene, Mark Arm and Steve Turner, started Mud Honey in 1988, combining punk and heavy metal influences with heaps of sleaze and self-deprecation into a sound one might feel compelled to call grunge? 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 Uh, Grunge, It just feels like saying that is just such heavy foreshadowing or something. You know, it's it's so ominous. Uh, They signed to an up-and-coming local label called Sub Pop, whose founder's knack for branding and sales began to spread the new sound far and wide. Mudhoney became a hit in England before bouncing to the majors in America, setting the stage for their successors to become a phenomena around the world. And today we'll be talking all things Mudhoney, the Super Fuzz, and the Big Muff from Chapter 12 of Our Bank of Beer Life. But first, let's introduce our guest. He is the features editor of InputMag.com and the author of Everybody Loves Our Town, an oral history of grunge. Welcome to the show, Mark Yarm. Thank you very much. And people are going to get immediately confused. I am not Mark Arm, the singer of Mud Honey, which is the band we're talking about today. It is like constant source of confusion in in my oh, world, yeah. at least. Yes, I was I was going to ask or lead in, you know, immediately cl- clear up that we did not ask you on the show simply for the n- naming symbol uh, similarities. It's be you know you you have the the grunge book background, but I imagine that came up uh, pretty much every time you did an interview for this uh, for this book. Yeah, it was a good icebreaker for sure. Like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, Mark Yarm, you just got to really hit the Y. Yeah. Anyway, so yes, you are the author of an oral history about grunge, which is why we uh, asked you to come on for this, as as I alluded to uh, in the intro. Uh, Mud Honey are arguably, well, you know, the first considered one of the first grunge bands. Uh, we usually go around uh, and start the show by saying like what we knew of grud- of Mud Honey before we started. So, uh, you know, Mark, maybe start with you. How did you come to Mud Honey? I- I'm going to be honest with you. I can't say that I was a huge Mud Honey fan when they first came out. I was aware of them. You know, I was in college when Nirvana came out and um, the all the grunge bands appealed to me. Well, you know, a lot of it on a soap opera-ish level, I have to admit. I was mm. a big reader of Spin Magazine and Kurt and Courtney were <laughs> obviously mm. objects of fascination. And uh, I mean, I think I came to Mud Honey technically, you know, later than that. Just, uh, I mean, Super Fuzz Big Muff is still... I mean, I think it's my favorite grunge album of all time. I mean, it's it's like perfect, perfect encapsulation of the grunge sound. And um, I don't think they ever bested it, to be quite honest. <laughs> I will pull the molly for this one and say that uh, Mud Honey was a band that I was not really aware of before I read Our Band Could Be Your Life. Um, but through reading it, you know, I kind of, I think one of the things that this chapter really does is is kind of uh, highlight their um, you know their their foundational importance in this in this scene uh, and yeah and when you hear first hear of uh, Super Fuzz Big Muff or and first listen to it you're like oh damn this this is an incredible record 
uh, that I've never heard of before. So it was it was very nice to uh, to learn of this band through this book. And then, of course, also I'll just continue to say that uh, the thing that I was aware of is mm-hmm. Sub Pop as like yeah. one of the towering indie labels, which is you know kind of what half this chapter is about as one of the towering indie labels of. Uh, you know, America, even if they had been through some uh, tribu- tribulations uh, for a while. So it was it was uh, interesting to kind of learn how intertwined the founding of that label and the founding of this band were. Yeah, I I am also I uh, like like myself. I I was not I was only aware of Mud Honey as a name that went in a list of other you know grunge bands that were referenced in you know, whatever uh, magazine that I was reading. I wasn't really familiar with the music itself until I read this book for the first time and then got into it. And yeah, I feel like it, to me, the the sub pop, you know, Genesis story is, I mean, especially as someone who's uh, always interested in like the branding of things in addition to the things themselves. I'm like, I'm. it was interesting to hear the, the perspective from uh, the the two the Mr. Sub and Mr. Pop of, uh, <laughs> of how it got I have started. Names. I've <laughs> put, some, put some respect Ponaman on their name. And, uh, yeah. Bruce Pavitt are the names yeah. of the guys. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep You're calling good. them Mr. Mr. Sub and Mr. All right, Pop. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I will also say that I I was reminded when I was like prepping for this that I I would have had at least some awareness of this band because they were featured in uh, I forget which but one of the uh, Chris Farley, yes, David Spade yes. movies, the which I that, certainly yeah, saw. Uh, I, I've never seen that movie, but I've seen the clip where Mud Honey are in it. And Governor Donnelly, yeah. <laughs> nice threads. Yeah. No, you jag. He ain't the governor. Yeah. He's running for governor. Why? Well, hey, get on out there! No, 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 God, which one? It was Black Sheep. Black Sheep is Black Sheep. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't think I could stand the rest of it, but I, I maybe <laughs> I don't mean to be a movie snob or anything, but Chris Farley, uh, not my. Well, not my jam, but um, I, I <laughs> sure. have seen the, the the couple of scenes that they're in. Uh, so I almost certainly saw that on I don't know uh, Comedy Central when I was uh, twelve or something, and and probably just gathered like, oh, this is supposed to be a cool band that they are seeing, and then not really knowing anything past that. Mm-hmm. I guess that that was probably yeah, probably the desired effect. I, I don't, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't actually know how they come into come into the plot but i know that they play and chris farley's on stage maybe he has his yeah. shirt off i don't remember sounds like about what would ha- be happening in that uh so molly do we want to get into the story of mud honey yes let's get into it um you know azra chose to begin the story of mud honey with uh bruce pavitt's origin um which is that he grew up in a chicago suburb uh, transferred to Evergreen State his junior year of college. I'm really curious if people still go to G- Evergreen State to kind of like taste that uh, that indie flavor, uh, or if that ha- if that school has sort of fallen out of favor for that because it was obviously a very powerful uh, institution of like indie rock uh, vibe. <laughs> I don't know, uh, but he he uh, he went there. He got into the underground music scene. Uh, he met Calvin Johnson, who we're going to talk about a little bit. Uh, who uh, Calvin Johnson contributed to the zine that Bruce Pavitt started, which is called Subterranean Pop. Uh, it was one of the zines that, uh, as Azarad said, first viewed independent music as like a national phenomenon as opposed to a regional one. After a while, he shortened the zine name to Sub Pop, and he started alternating uh, print issues with uh, cassette compilations of American indie bands, including some regional bands uh, to guarantee sales in their hometowns. And this was like 
an incredibly successful endeavor. Sub Pop number five sold 2,000 copies, which paid Bruce's rent for like a year and a half. <laughs> it's yeah. just nice to see about someone, see someone like doing well for just like selling some tunes on a, on a tape, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting hearing about that of, of that early like innovation in, in branding and like getting, uh, not just you know you're you're writing out there, but then using the zine as a mechanism for you know distributing music. Yep, for sure. So he moves to Seattle in 1983. He is so broke that he sold his blood twice a week, uh, <laughs> which seems like too much <laughs> to me. These guys, like these guys, you should know, were also prone to exaggeration. Both Pavin and Poneman. <laughs> so I, I don't know if I would take that at face value, but it's po- it's it's entirely possible. I don't know how many days eh. you need to restore your platelets, but it's a lot. That's yeah. probably the subject of like another podcast, the blood yes. blood plasma donation podcast, which maybe I'll start. Yes. <laughs> Just monitoring uh, regional uh, sales levels, uh, you know, the rates you can get in various places. Yeah, I, just, yeah, I just found a hole in the market. so I'm, I'm <laughs> some, white, some white space to work with. I, that thing about them being prone to exaggeration is something that, I, you know, you, you kind of track through this. That, and it's part of their, their knack for branding and, and uh, you know, kind of part of that is self-aggrandizement. But I, I did definitely get the vibe reading through this chapter that, uh, you know, almost anything they said about either the heights of their success or the depths of their struggles was possibly a lie. I, I, I marketers would, would say that's, that's probably accurate. Lie, lies where I, I think they would cop to lying a lot in, in good fun, <laughs> in good fun. I mean, yeah, occasionally sure. it got, I mean, we're probably getting to the financial dire straits that they got into and then they would actually just lie, lie about their <laughs> yeah. finances and oh, the check's not, you know, the checks in the mail, whatever, uh, right. Sort of thing. So, Totally, um, yeah. Not the fun kind of lying. Uh, no, yes, the the uh, lying so as not to get beaten to a pulp. Lying, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Bruce in Seattle. He uh, worked in an indie record store. He DJed at an all ages uh, club. And the club was where he first met a guy named Mark McLaughlin. Uh, Mark, I'm hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Mark McLaughlin. Uh, he was in a high school band called Mr. Epp and the Calculations, which is definitely one of my favorite like juvenilia bands uh, from this book. Um, he chose the punk name Mark Arm, uh, thereby eventually stealing valor from uh, uh, Mark Yarm eventually. <laughs> um, and Mark was introduced to Steve Turner. Uh, mistakenly uh, by a friend, a mutual friend who thought that they were both straight edge um, and thought that they would get along and then they immediately met each other and realized that that was uh, simply not true but they, they bonded uh, Mr. Epp uh, broke up and they wanted to start another band together, which became Green River. Yes. Should we uh, should we play a Mr. Epp quick, clip really quickly? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, I don't think I realized that Mr. Epp was put put on wax. Yeah, there there are a few. Uh, yeah, Mo- Mohawk Man was their big hit. Yeah, big I've got quotes. Mohawk Man here. All right. Be cool like Wendy. Gonna grab a razor. 
shocking blue, buy a leather jacket and a Uh, this song seems like it should have been on like the Repo Man soundtrack. I can totally see it fitting in there. Yeah. Show it off with pride. I hate the police. Put them on the fascist side. I've got a mohawk, man. A mohawk, man. A real mohawk, man. Do you understand? <laughs> You know, I guess we're uh, we're getting the indication of kind of the sense of humor that runs through uh, all of their uh, projects, kind of not taking it too seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely kind of snot-nosed punk sort of sensibility. Mm-hmm. But even like being punk about being oh, punk, yeah, yeah. you know? Very self-knowing ah, about the whole scene. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's a theme throughout Mudhoney's music. That's right. If I'm lucky, really, really lucky. I also appreciate this, uh, this like feedbacky guitar line that like indicates that it's going to become something, but <laughs> never quite becoming something. <laughs> yeah, where's the drop? Yeah, we'll just finish this up. Oh, yeah, I didn't realize we're gonna listen to the whole song. <laughs> well, you know, honestly, I was waiting for the guitar line to involve to evolve to something. And Poor it, Chris. It, uh, it, uh, <laughs> it, uh, like, what, faked when me is out. it? Yeah, when is it gonna really, uh, really open up? When's uh, it going to go harder? Yes. God damn it. So that's uh, Mohawk Man by Mr. Epp and the Calculations. Wonderful. Uh, but apparently n- named for a, a high school teacher, high school math teacher, I guess that that's, was Mr. Epp. Sounds about right. That's an honor, honestly. Like, <laughs> imagine you're just teaching and some kid's like, I named my band after you. <laughs> I mean, it makes it all oh, either that or it goes the other way to uh, that it was done it, precisely to make fun of the teacher. Sure. Yeah. That That is the... That is the, the the risk one takes. Um, so yeah, th- uh, the Mr. Up and the calculations break up. Uh, Green River gets started uh, between Mark and Steve, as well as a uh, a joke side band called the Throne Ups, uh, <laughs> who recorded uh, such gems as "Eat My Dump." Um, any chance we could sample "Eat My Dump" if Let, if that exists? Let's see if uh, if the Throne Ups "Eat My Dump" exists. <laughs> okay. Oh, it definitely. And exists. I promise. We- <laughs> I've heard it. I've heard it. So it then it then it's definitely on uh, YouTube. Uh, it's probably on YouTube. yeah. There's actually a song. Uh, maybe this would be a little better. It's called politically incorrect name. Now it's called Bucking Retards. And, oh wow! And you'll recognize it. Just you'll you'll see how that that grew into a, a song on Superfest. So I would recommend playing that. All right, let's Great. see if I can find it. Great. Okay, here we go. See if you recognize the guitar line. This, this is 
mar- those maracas. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like that this has a very much like weirdo outsider 80s energy to this. It, it feels very um, in line with some of the other stuff, like, I don't know, like the frogs or stuff. Before that, it would become, if, if they became, went on to become like a hard rock band. Mm. But we don't have to listen to the entirety of this one. <laughs> But that gives you a sense. Uh, it, yeah. it should be noted that all those songs were. were whoa. All those, sorry, sorry. <laughs> all those songs were uh, completely improvised, especially the lyrics. And um, that turned into You Got It, Keep It Out of My Face, which is on Super Fuzz Big Muff. So uh, they recycled a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, well, we'll have to come back to that when it becomes a uh, quote unquote real song. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's the thrown ups. Um, meanwhile, Sonic Youth is, it, it, they're real, they exist and they're, they're my friend. <laughs> they played a show at, uh, the record store where Bruce Pavitt worked. Bruce suggested that Green River open for Sonic Youth, uh, for, uh, that show, which they did. That was in, also in 1985. And then every time they played Seattle, uh, Sonic Youth asked, uh, Green River, to play uh, before them. And Thurston Moore in his diary said of a Green River set, "'Twas hot, sorta like very ultra." <laughs> and it's a very Thurston Moore uh, phrasing. Has Thurston ever published his his diaries in any way? Because I gotta see that. Uh, that's a good question. question. That seems I like hit money on the table for Thurston Moore if he <laughs> wanted to. Uh, for, yeah, I don't think he, I mean, he certainly published poetry and things of that nature, but I don't recall any journals, perhaps posthumously. I want to see it. Yeah. Right. And I want to see it in his own handwriting too, you know? Yeah. Uh, that would be a good coffee table book. The Thurston yes. Moore Diaries. Thurston Moore uh, Diaries. So now, uh, maybe a Green River clip. Uh, Mark, is there anything that you like off that first Green River album? There's the song Swallow My Pride, which was... Uh, covered by a bunch of people. I think the Fastbacks covered it. I could swear that Soundgarden covered it too, although I'm going to double check that. Well, we can start listening to this. I When I was rereading this chapter, the thing that I actually really got into, more than I you know, I already like, uh, you know, especially Super Puzz, Big Muff, but I was really vibing with this Green River stuff. Yeah. Uh, yes. Here's Swallow My Pride. Soundgarden did cover Swallow My Pride. <laughs> Like, kind of a little more, uh, uh, seems like they're trying to do a hard rock thing in this, but I, 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 uh, I quite enjoy these Green River tracks. Yeah, keep my blood from running cold. Now I just 
Yeah. Yeah, a little, a little more garagey. Yeah. Perhaps. Maybe with a little of the uh, like '80s heavy heavy metal type sound uh, to it. But am I remembering correctly that Azrad mentions nuggets at the beginning of this chapter? Uh, yes. The, he talks about the the kind of that that was one of the flames that kept the that that was kept alive in in the Pacific Northwest. And you know, like nuggets, luminaries, yes. like the Sonics were certainly uh, uh, you know, part of that Pacific Northwest scene. Yes. Half of Mud Honey were record collectors. <laughs> that's, such, <laughs> that's such a weird thing. Like I feel like that's such a very like specific thing to say. Half of Mud Honey were half record collectors. Fifty. The other half didn't exactly. give a yeah, shit. Well, I, I don't know. Yeah. Or there were five of them at one point. I, I I mean Steve Turner. I don't know if we've gotten to that point yet where he drops out of the band. But mm. oh yeah, right. Right. They were too metal for him. They're too metal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. Um, the the other uh, Green River anecdote I of course wanted to share is that there's a running theme through this book of uh, of uh, John, John Lydon uh, being a jerk and he finally gets <laughs> gets it back to him where uh, he they say if you want to see what ha-, they open for a uh, uh, pill if you want to see what happens to somebody who's completely sold out just wait <laughs> <laughs> which is honestly like that's not even like that that's I guess it's a read but like I don't know it's it's good that they did it yeah I'm yes. proud of them in my book there's a they're all recollecting about all the tomfoolery <laughs> that took place uh, backstage and and John Lydon telling them to shut the fuck up and uh, <laughs> and um, <laughs> basically not very punk not very punk at all so as as the years have as the years have uh obviously shown not as punk as yes he, he would right like. or maybe ex- yeah, no, he- extremely punk like in that right-wing proto-fascist way <laughs> right yes. like the og attitude no the combination of all the uh, john lyden public image stories throughout this if nothing else give the impression that he is a, an extreme backstage priss like uh, showing up in a limo to, to like an auditorium gig and like constantly telling people to like not have fun backstage. Uh, I, I, I don't like know what da- like your mean dad. Like yeah, mean exactly. Dad. <laughs> yeah. Your mean Trump loving dad. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like lighten up, bro. Um, so yeah, the the general scene in the Pacific Northwest is that uh, you know punk had taken hold in the late seventies. Uh, but garage rock and uh, commercial metal were also very popular. And the scene uh, was small and uh, intimate. There weren't that many bands, which I think, and uh, Mark, I would love to you know, get your uh, take, take or perspective on this as someone who wrote an entire oral history about this. But it just sounds like it, it, the scene was small enough that everyone who was in it kind of felt like they were bi- bigger because of that, kind of like big fish, small pond type of thing. Yeah, I don't know if I could. I don't know if I would say that. Maybe I don't, I, it's not something I've contemplated before. But they certainly, they certainly felt other than like they were like in Seattle, which at the time, it was a part of important context here is that Seattle. I mean, now we know Seattle, Starbucks, Microsoft, mm-hmm. uh, a cosmopolitan city that uh, many people want to move to. But back then. I mean, as as Bruce Pavitt told me, it was kind of like the hinterlands. Like when he moved out there from from Illinois, people were like, "Is that the Wild West? Are there like cowboys out there?" Like literally said that <laughs> to him. Like it was like it was kind of. I mean, depressed. I mean, the the term Skid Row comes from from Seattle, so that that uh, shows you the the kind of derelict vibe of the city, and. Um, mm. 
yeah, it, basically all these bands had to sort of make their own fun, and they had a lot of touring bands at the time would actually skip Seattle because it was kind of geographically inconvenient for them. So um, they had to make their own fun and all these bands were cross-pollinating and swapping members and going to each other's shows. So they kind of, it was like a little germ culture, I think what is what Jack and Dino compared it to. And Jack and Dino, of course, produced Super Fuzz Big Muff. Um, Mm -hmm. But you haven't, surprisingly, you haven't mentioned about Green River. They have like other famous members in it. They have uh, yeah. uh, two members of Pearl Jam who went on to be in yeah, Pearl Jam. Yes, 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 um, yes. Stone Gossard and Jeff Amen, or Amen, I, I always forget how to pronounce it. Stone and Jeff, uh, who were sort of the the metal half of the band. And and uh, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but that comes into yeah, play yeah, later. Yeah. Dot, dot, dot. But, the, but yeah, that's that speaks to the fact that all these bands were in each other's bands for, you know, and the, were good. the years leading up to this. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I the thing that I thought really sold it whole. I forget who who said this, but uh, they were talking about the photographer who ended up taking yes. a lot of the uh, Charles the, Peterson. Yeah, a lot of the um, cover photos for these albums, and they mentioned that he had a great knack for taking photos that made it seem like everything was happening in 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 like crowded uh, uh, spaces when really at, like all the shows were like the band playing to the 16 other people who were in bands who were yeah. in the audience. Yeah. I mean, his, one of his great photographic innovations, at least for it was, was getting a lot of the audience in there. So you'll see, actually you'll see like, uh, Charles Peterson photos of like, uh, young Mark arm or young Chris Cornell or young, uh, Buzz Osborne of the Melvins, like in the audience at other people's shows. It's, it's, it's really fascinating. I mean, they were all basically attending each other's shows and very small audiences, but it looked huge. I mean, you look at the cover of super fuzz, big muff. That's a great photo. It's just like, yeah, exactly. I mean, just a moment captured in time, but, uh, looks like a lot's going on on that stage. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the other portion of the kind of early Seattle scene that I actually wasn't aware of um, a- until I read this book is the the prevalence of MDA as a drug that was kind of keeping people like sort of lovey-dovey and like chill and like vibing together. I don't think I, I had not been aware of that as like a scene making thing. Yeah, I think obviously Seattle's um, associated with heroin, but there was, yeah, I mean, there was that early on and, and, and Bud Honey went through a sort of phase of wearing these like Mardi Gras style beads, like kind of hippie, <laughs> hippie love, love child sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I think that that was, that was around in that time, uh, a lot less dour than heroin for sure. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right, it right. is. It is very funny when you, when you think, you know, the story, uh, of, of grunge and you read it in here that it was like, yeah, in the late eighties, it was just like every, every show was just cheap beer and, and cheap MDA. Mm-hmm. And everybody was just going up to each other being like, you guys are just the great, you guys are so great. You guys, this is so good at everything that everybody's doing here. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about Seattle is it was like a beer town. I mean, obviously everyone associates it with heroin, but there were like just as many alcoholics as heroin. I, guess. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know what the ratio was, but uh, I mean, it was kind of a, a dividing line almost. I mean, I talked to people who would say, you know, we would be drinking beer and then the people would shuffle off into the back rooms and do the heroin. So it was like out of sight for the yeah. more lager loudish sort of people, I guess. <laughs> 
I think uh, I I can't remember who was interviewed and, and blamed it on this, but Dan Peters, who ended up being the drummer for Mud Honey, was apparently like, you know, the trope of like the drummer who's in like five different bands and it's just like very in demand because they are just good at drumming and there just seem, always seems to be a shortage of drummers. It just sounded like he was super busy and then he said yes to to playing uh, with Mud Honey and they just assumed that he was on MDA and just kind of like being like, yeah, sure, that sounds great, whatever. <laughs> so shout but out then to showed, that substance. But then he showed up to practice. Then he showed up to practice. You gotta, yeah, you gotta follow through. Um, yeah, speaking of which, Green River recorded Dry as a Bone, which is an EP for Sub Pop, uh, and Bruce Pavitt described it in a catalog as ultra-loose grunge that destroyed the morals of a generation. <laughs> yeah, there's a... Yeah, not thus grunge was born because there's a whole debate. I mean, I go into it in fair amount of depth in my book. Like, I mean, Mark Arm himself has been uh, credited with coining the term grunge in a fanzine where he was writing a letter about his own band, Mr. Epp and the Calculations, mm. uh, mm. pretending to be outraged and calling it grunge and. Although he he says the term has been you know been around for decades and decades and you know uh, Steve Turner said it was in you know rock and roll uh, liner notes in the fifties and whatnot so uh, it has a, a long history but I think Bruce Pavitt using that way was definitely the the root of the commercialization of the word grunge because it was used mm. in ad copy and he yeah. I mean those guys were real savvy ad copy writers. Uh, I mean, you read some of those uh, uh, descriptions that were in uh, the the early sub pop catalogs, and they're they're quite brilliant. Yeah, the the uh, <laughs> destroyed the morals of a generation is a is yeah. a very funny <laughs> thing the, to the describe genera- music that probably not a lot of people yeah. have actually heard. <laughs> generation X is still reeling from mud honey. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the damage, the damage. Or was that Green River? I'm sorry, still reeling. Oh yeah, <laughs> sorry, they're dealing for reeling from something. Yeah, well, right. the morals continue to be destroyed. Yes, yes, yeah, <laughs> thoroughly Very debased. Powerful. I mean, but that is funny that it, you know, I, I, I do think that's interesting about the, uh, you know, the 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 origin of the term, uh, you know, being debated, and it, I, I don't disbelieve that it's been tossed around for rock music since basically it started although it is funny to imagine somebody listening to like the the all kind of ultra clean guitars of 50s rock music and being still so scandalized at then it just kind of shows you how quickly things come to be like listening uh uh you know johnny be good and be like listen to all this grungy <laughs> guitar going this on is in positively here. grungy uh, I don't know. I don't know how people in the fifties talk this. It was like, uh, like British aristocrats, I think, just yeah, like exactly. that. This, this rock and roll is is a uh, is disgusting. And then there are uh, bow ties spun around in circles. You know, <laughs> well, I do declare. Um, but then also, you know, it is. It, then it is funny to me that that it's not until you kind of put something in, as you were saying, ad copy, that it then becomes. It's not until you are literally trying to sell it that it it becomes, you know, a, a thing, uh, a label Gal- to put on galvanized. Things. One might say crystallized. Yeah. Um, yeah, the uh, uh, th- the other thing that eventually does get sort of marketed and it, it's it's funny because the Azarad notes in the book that though there is like the Seattle sound, if you are from Seattle, like there, you don't actually find that much in common between, you know, the, the sound of one band versus another. But uh, uh, Jack and Dino, the kind of eventual house uh, engineer for Sub Pop, described it as fuzzy guitars, bashing drums, screaming vocals, no keyboards, and a general loud intent. 
<laughs> Which I'm like, that could describe some other things, but I, I understand trying to sort of uh, create the, the taxonomy of it in a way. I, I also like the idea that you could bring, uh, regardless of the actual dynamics of your intru- instrument, you can bring a loud intent to any kind of music. You know, that's more of like a, 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 a spiritual uh, thing. That was my plan for this podcast to bring a loud intent. A loud, a loud intent. intent. <laughs> Just blow blow out the vocals, and then yeah, the uh, uh, Bruce found a, uh, a a a business friend in Jonathan Poneman, uh, who was a uh, University of Washington student. Who uh, I'm not. I actually can't remember. It just sounds like he was independently wealthy in some way or another yeah, because he, had he offered a bit of a sound trust garden fund. There you go. I mean, shout out to anyone who has a trust fund who who throws it into uh, music as opposed <laughs> yeah. to like some I don't know weird offshore oil yeah, company. Yeah. Um, but he yeah he, they offer he offered Soundgarden um, financing for I think it was their first album after seeing them play live. And then someone was like, "Hey, Bruce, you got to get a load of this guy. <laughs> like he <laughs> he seems to be like down with the scene." Um, and uh, you know. I I believe did Screaming Life come out on Sub Pop? Did was that how the like initial um Yeah, I mean that clinch uh, happened. Kim Fail, who's the guitarist for Soundgarden, uh takes credit for bringing those two guys together uh to form what was known as Sub Pop to put out their records. So, uh he takes full credit for that. Yeah. <laughs> Someone someone's got to um, hey, Well, you got to be proud when you get the right people to shake hands. True. That's true. The the connector as a uh, yeah, Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell, Gladwell would say <laughs> he's classically thinking of a, a Kim Bale type man. I saw that guy in like a car commercial the other night, and and he just seemed to be talking about how like oh it's like an innovative car. I'm like, do they just tap? Do they just tap this guy now as like we need to talk about like the future? So like we're gonna talk about you, we're gonna get Malcolm Gladwell uh, to okay. speak. Not Kim Fail. He was not <laughs> in a car. Commercial. No, no. That would, that would be funny. <laughs> Which would also be funny. Yeah. This, now, this car outshines others. And <laughs> now I'm asking you to imagine both Malcolm Gladwell and Kim I, in a, a car commercial would, at the same time. I would, I would actually maybe buy that car. <laughs> just two two rotating platforms, just kind yeah. of like t- yeah. Why not? Why not? Um, so yeah, Green River then uh, splits up uh, soon after this meeting of the minds. Uh, members of, of course, members of Green River don't do anything cool with the rest of their lives. They certainly don't. Uh, help form Pearl Jam. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, the uh, Mud Honey forms when Dan Peters, uh, po- possibly on MDA, says says yes to drumming, as well as uh, the basis for the Melvins, Matt Lucan. Uh, I love this detail from the book. They all play together for the first time on New Year's Day, 1988, and they're not hungover because they skipped drinking on amateur night. <laughs> oh, they were, I don't remember that detail. I haven't read the book in a while. I, I thought they were. I I was under the impression that they were hungover. But uh, it just, I just love the idea. I'm like, did, did they did they rent a tape? <laughs> like stayed stayed home, had a little like Coca Cola, maybe some popcorn, and then woke I mean, up fresh to start playing with Mud Honey. Maybe the uh, maybe the real joke was uh, organizing a band practice on New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, when everyone around them would be hungover and have to listen to them. True, true. Um, so yeah, they they were not a uh, you know a cutthroat, ambitious group. They basically figured they could record, maybe record a single and have a little fun. Um, Sub Pop paid them one hundred and sixty dollars to record five songs, uh, and then meanwhile they started playing together a bunch. They developed a uh, sick live show and uh 
you know, Steve Turner basically says, he's like, yeah, it was that easy. Like he's just talking about the ease of which they like got together, recorded some songs, started playing shows in town. It just sounded like they were like having a, a nice fun time. Yeah. It's, which is <laughs> funny compared to the, the kind of, I mean, creatively things seem to come together for all these bands, but the struggle to do anything that like a lot of the bands in this book uh, have to do. Um, right. But I think it, it maybe just, you know, kind of, uh, uh, goes to show how the bands in the scene you know we're all and the people in the scene we're all friends and so it's like oh yeah mark and steve's new band yeah we, we, we'll play that how many how long have they been rehearsing for two weeks yeah book them play them it's fine right right and their first single was uh touch me i'm sick and sweet young thing ain't sweet no more which was released uh it was recorded early 1988 but was not released until august so that bruce pavitt could press the record on uh turd brown vinyl yeah that is uh <laughs> little factoid here that is Bruce Pavitt's toilet bowl on the cover of the single. Oh, great. Wonderful. That's a great, that is a great tidbit. See, again, it's like all this branding stuff. He's like, he, he, he's got the, gr- the grunge thing. He's like, this band rocks, but I need to, to project that they are like shit, but yes. in a, a cool way. Right. Yes. Uh, so we got to listen to touch me. I'm sick. This is, this is the ultimate song. grunge song. This is yeah, the song. It's, it's so good. Uh, here we go. Touch me, I'm sick. Off uh, Super Fuzz, Big Muff. I always love that like belching sound he makes at the beginning of the song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, reminds me of like a slithering snake or something. Yeah. <laughs> I love the. Oh, go go ahead, Mark. Have you heard "Touch Me, I'm Dick" from the single soundtrack? No. Oh <laughs> yes, yes I have. It's uh, it's um, the song that the parody song that was in singles that the Matt Dillon's band sits in Dick plays called "Touch Me, I'm Dick." There's like dialogue about oh, okay. it. Okay. They finally released it commercially on an expanded edition of single soundtrack years ago it's basically this Uh, except an extended dick joke yeah uh i watched i remember watching single singles i haven't seen it since uh high school uh i remember watching it because my my um one of my high school buddies uh was like we have to watch singles because we need to understand generation x was he a sociologist or something He was no. He was just interested in uh, in uh, cultural anthropology as a high schooler. Uh, That's so sweet. Like, we need to know these people who came immediately before us. What what, <laughs> what, they, what their I habits were. I appreciate your friends' attempt to reach out to to cross generational outreach. Uh, but I think you could do worse than watching uh, singles if that is the one thing that you, you want to You could do better. You could do better, yeah. though. I mean, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it's not the best movie. Like, if it weren't, I love, love, love the grunge parts and all the cameos and everything. But as a movie, as a rom-com, not, not the best of... I mean, Cameron Crowe has done some incredible movie. I mean, Fast Times, he, he wrote, and which is an incredible movie. And he's done, I mean... Almost famous. I love that movie, but singles. 
besides the rock stuff, not the best movie in the world. The main thing I remember is that the 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 main character's moral dilemma is whether or not, or one of the main character's moral dilemma is whether or not to sell out by joining municipal Seattle government and planning a monorail. <laughs> uh yeah. Well, selling out was a big concern back then. It was, yes. certainly was, but I mean, um, I, I think that was I think that was heartfelt. Uh. We barely we barely talked about the song. It's kind of one of those that's like I mean, the song just rocks. Uh, but the, the thing that I the I I, re- I just really love the guitar tones. Uh, and then in that song, I guess that is the uh, the titular, the super fuzz, and the big muff. Uh, kind of uh, um, coming in wa- over each channel of your headphone. Uh, I like the 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 just the interplay of the guitar lines. The one doing that really fast riff, and then the other one just crush it, c- crashing mm-hmm. in on those two big hits on the side. Uh, the gang vocals at the end that we don't know, we don't know the the hypermanic drumming. It's it's just like it's all there and it rocks. Chris, you moonlight as a rock critic by any chance? You know, I might be influenced because just yesterday we re- we did our interview with Michael Azarad and we spent the uh, last part of it talking about his rock crit law. Oh right, right. Uh, the book that jokes, he wrote and now I have all those phrases. Uh, in my head. So, so you're I'm just, just regurgitate, like, regurgitating them, yeah. But. I tried to censor myself from saying the gar- guitars were quote dueling. <laughs> well, so uh, only ban- I don't think only, they were dueling. They only were banjos duel. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, the, the the guitars collaborated. They, they collaborated <laughs> successfully and harmoniously. Uh, they worked together. Uh, they 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 synchronized. Uh, they, <laughs> the also uh, two two minutes and thirty three seconds. Is that the best length for a song? I think it's it might one of be. them. Yeah. I think, I think that's a good thing to aim for. Uh, no, how much more do you need to say, you know, that you can't fit into 233, if you ask me? Right. I'm a big fan of like 207, 208, that range too. Ooh, for, uh, for aggressive, a hyper, aggressive. Uh, a hyper quick one. But yeah, two, 233 is a pretty good length. Yeah. Also, uh, l- lyrically, you know, there's a lot of mileage to be had about singing about how you're a creep, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were some there were some uh, misunderstandings of the lyrics. I mean, there was there was an interpretation that it might be about AIDS, which Mark Arm says it was most definitely not. I mean, touch me, I'm sick. Oh wow! So, but not about AIDS. I think just about a creepy ass guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just sick. Just sick in the mind, reg- regular being, style. Yeah. Generally diseased and enfeebled. Yeah, yeah just being yeah. weirdo. The, the interesting thing about that single, though, is that they thought that the B side. Or maybe "Touch Me I'm Sick" was uh, it, it's all blurry now, but uh, they thought that the other song, uh, "Sweet Young Thing," it's "Sweet No More," was going to be the quote unquote hit. Ah, uh. not "Touch Me I'm Sick." <laughs> I don't know how they could have not heard the hit potential. I mean, it is. I mean, it, it's a rightful. It's. I mean, the hit we're using loosely here, but <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. Sure. it is a classic, and they should have recognized yes. it earlier. Yep, yep. <laughs> a hit selling upwards of one thousand <laughs> copies. <laughs> Hey, so, you know, talk about other marketing stunts. Uh, when the Turd Brown vinyl sold out and it was marketed as a limited edition, they just pressed it again in a different color, uh, therefore uh, basically influencing, you know, it's that's at the bottom of the domino pile and at the top is uh, Taylor Swift's entire marketing strategy for, <laughs> for 2021. Oh, uh, let's just re-record one song and then just put it out in like a different, you know, with different cover art. Isn't that the whole vinyl flim flam thing anyway? Just keep re-releasing things on marbled vinyl and and whatnot, and just yeah, clear vinyl, yeah, ad nauseum, radioactive vinyl. <laughs> it is it is funny thinking about how much more uh, I don't know mercenary 
the sub pop guys are compared to, you know, just a few chapters ago, we were talking to Steve Albini, like literally calling up uh, his distributors to, to cancel contracts because he found out that they were like pressing a single, a different single in a different format, one town over when uh, he said that they were specifically only to give those to, uh, to uh, uh, radio stations. Yes. Because he didn't want fans having to buy or being even being able to buy a song on a different format. Yeah. Sacri- sacrilege. That's pretty Mr. rigid. Mr. Albini. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it, even when you think of what what they're building off of at the beginning of the book of uh of SST, which by I'm pretty sure by this point SST's marketing strategy is like let's put out a lot of records. <laughs> like we like we got a lot of them. We're not yes. going to advertise them, but like we've got tons. Whatever you want, we got it. Um but yeah, so, Sub Pop is like they're they're clever. Uh they released the single, they uh hit on tour in summer of 1988 the crowds are very sparse um but then their profiles raised when they release super fuzz big muff uh the joke from that of course lyrically is that steve turner said many of uh mark arm's songs somehow mentioned dogs or sickness and we kept hoping he'd come in with a song about a sick dog but he never did <laughs> so there's like there's some space to be filled i think if anyone yeah, I wants mean, they're, to sing they're, a song about mud a sick still, dog mud honey's still going there's still time uh, it's still time. Mark, you said that the one that was an update of the um, the thrown up song was You Gotta Keep It Out of My Face? Correct. All right. Well, let's listen to that one off of Super Fuzz Big Muff. <laughs> it matured a bit. <laughs> Maybe. to this and just thinking about all the connections and wondering if slightly later uh, grunge song uh, Possum Kingdom by the Toadies is a rip off of this. Good question. Uh, uh, I haven't heard it's that song. kind of got in that one. same rip. I like that Toadies song about uh, Behind the Boathouse song. Yeah, yeah, that's Possum Kingdom. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that shit is dark. Yeah, I don't know what's going on Behind the Boathouse, but it is not good. I, I, I don't want to know about it. <laughs> Now, it should be noted that I'm not sure, like, there's Super Fuzz Big Muff, and then there's, like, the version I have on CD is called Super Fuzz Big Muff, but singles, so there's, like, I, I don't know what the original six songs were versus the ones that, so whether this was on the original EP or yes. not, I don't, I, I can't tell you, but this is all mishmashed into one big album for me now. Yeah, that, I think that's what I'm playing it off of. Um, okay. You are correct that that is only record. Uh, that one's only reintroduced uh, with the re-release. So I will play my other favorite song off the original track list, which is "Mud Ride," which takes a little bit to get going. So I might skip in a, a hair. So we just start in the middle. Well, I got This is the kind of like slower, sludgier version of what they do. Yeah, one of the guys from the Throne Ups told me that this was about it's about you know belly for Uzo. It's about a big drinking night out. Hmm. That's all I know about the song Mud Ride. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
I, but yeah, just like more of something that you can one can only describe or for me as grungy, just like yeah. slow and sludgy and dirty. And literally and, about dirt. Yeah, and like hollering about mud. So that's just a, a hair of, of mud ride. Hell yeah. You love, you love to hear it. Um, so yeah, that they, uh, uh, Mudhoney also, you know, kept touring with Sonic Youth. They went to Europe with Sonic Youth. Uh, they apparently sort of stunned the members of Sonic Youth with their uh, sheer debauchery in terms of how much they, <laughs> they drank and partied. Um, which, you know, I just feel like shocking Sonic Youth is probably not the easiest thing uh, of, for what they do and see all the time. But my favorite anecdote from this section is when uh, they played in Manchester and uh, the, the Man- Manchurians, Manchurians started Mancunian, uh, Mancunian, excuse me, right. Uh, Manchurian would be a, more like a <laughs> candidate. Uh, the They were uh, gobbing uh, mud honey, a.k.a. Uh, showering them with saliva and uh, Mud Honey told them to quit it. Uh, not a Seattle gobbing, not a Seattle practice, um, but they love it in New York City. So when Sonic Youth takes the stage, be sure to give them a big uh, spitty welcome. <laughs> and uh, I just thought I thought that was the the best way to get around it was was just invoking the the regionalism. Yes, so, genius. Save it, saving it for the asking people to save it for the headliners is a is a the <laughs> the one way that I. I've not heard anybody else get around the gobbing, which is usually to just get very mad at people. <laughs> yeah, just getting upset and the people continuing to spit on them yeah. uh, to, to no avail. Um, so yeah, they, the, the, their you know, tunes are, are succeeding. The Seattle sound and look is being marketed uh, actively by Sub Pop. Uh, other bands are being attracted to to the machine, uh, like uh, one of the bands from Aberdeen that called up Jack and Dino and wanted to record a song. Uh, the early assessment of their their music was that it was too rock. Um, this is, of course, a, a band with a, a name that they thought was corny, Nirvana. Uh, but uh, Poneman loved them. They recorded Love Buzz slash Big Cheese, and that was Sub Pop's first release for their singles club, which was a financial decision that involved basically getting getting an investment uh, from listeners where you you paid uh, in a yearly sum uh, to receive a, a monthly single from Sub Pop. And this was uh, advertised by Sub Pop as saying, we are ripping you off big time. <laughs> so just so many layers of, uh, of irony were- and promotion. It was kind of like the uh, the '80s indies scene version of uh, Patreon, which is yeah. like you you can really you know you can get somebody to buy something once, but if you can get somebody to subscribe, subscribe. Now there, now, I mean, now that was a, yeah, the sub pop singles club was super innovative, and uh, I mean they're still doing it. They have like a, I mean they 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 revive it every every number of years, and I think they have one going on now. John Waters just released a single a sub pop single. On their, oh. I think oh, it's wow. a sub pop, but out of the purview yeah. of this show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I remember getting uh, uh picking up a few, maybe there were like one or two different sub pop single series during uh well like when I was in high school or college at some time. Yeah, they they come up every now and then. It's it's a good idea. It is. Yep, it's smart. The uh, sub pop more like sub stack. 
Sorry, I was <laughs> I was just sitting sitting on that and seeing if it would work. Um, yeah, the I'm just very interested in, in Sub Pop is basically you know being. A, a cool business which i feel like are two words that usually don't go together and the idea that they you know everything they do is designed to get more attention get more uh you know get more sales and yet because they're doing it with this sort of ironic distance they can set you know they're they're not like the other uh labels they're a cool label uh which azra described basically as self-promotion disguised as self-deprecation uh, and I feel like that is holds on to this day when people tweet whatever they publish by saying, so I did a thing. <laughs> they were they were kind of so I did a thinging their their music <laughs> business in these early days. But there's also that like level of um, of, of kind of like ad busters vibe that would come yeah. a little later, cult, like culture jamming type type impulses. It, it, but mixed in with. Yeah, the levels of sincerity and insincerity, like the fact that they actually had like a cool hip logo that kind of looked like it could be a corporate logo uh, and, and did these like things that were like innovative business practices. But then, yeah, when they put put them out be, being, like, being like, you hate this, but do it anyway because it's yeah. cool. It's more like, not I did a thing. It's more like, I did a really shitty thing. Yeah. <laughs> and you should pay me money. Please read it. Please <laughs> like and subscribe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and another tactic that they did was, uh, you know, seducing the British press, uh, correctly assessing that, you know, as many of these bands do, that success in England will then trickle back toward attention in the United States. And uh, boy, oh boy, did the Brits just love the uh, sort of working class lumberjack vibes of uh, Mud Honey, even though that was, you know, the, it, it, Azarad kind of tracks all these people basically making up backstories for the members of Mud Honey of, of Trump way trumping up their their working class credentials uh, because it's, you know, kind of fit the narrative of Seattle as this yeah. frontier town. I mean, half of them did have sort of more working class. I mean, Dan Peters came from sort of a broken family. He was super young too. I don't know. He was like a teenager when he joined that band. Um, uh, Lucan was more towards, he was from Aberdeen. You know, he knew all the, the Nirvana guys and stuff. Uh, you know, uh, Mark and Steve were more like the prep school kids, prep school punks. Uh, and, mm-hmm. the, you know, Mark, I think Mark Arm's mom was an opera singer or something during World <laughs> War Two. So like he, uh-huh. he was he you know he came from uh, a little bit. I, I don't know if I don't know how wealthy they were, but definitely a different class than than half the band were. Yeah, they were from two you know two different sort of stratas, I guess. Mm-hmm. I wonder which half were the record collectors. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I wonder if there's some correlation there. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, they probably all collected records, but I think, I mean, Steve Turner is like a pretty renowned record collector. He's, and uh, I mean, Mark Arm too. But uh, the other guys, I don't know. But uh, they're certainly into music. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it is. A, it's just another you know funny thread that we've been tracking through this whole book of the uh, the British music press being. Uh, I don't want to say like gullible, but just just so willing to be uh like they, they were in on kind a of joke. taken yeah the guy kind of taken for a ride the guy who wrote that article the big sub pop article which I believe it came out when it, when Green River were together I think it was pre Mud Honey it, it's the the years are a little fuzzy now but his name was Everett True not his real name but that that was his pen name sure um <laughs> and uh. I interviewed him for my book and I mean, he basically copped to, he, you know, he was 
kind of an irresponsible journalist. Uh, not not <laughs> someone like myself who would never do such a thing. But I mean, he he basically <laughs> copped to all the descriptions of the bands in that article. Um, were basically, you know, he was on deadline. He had been fucking around. I mean, he, he liked to drink a lot. I mean, that was the thing. He liked to drink, and so he, he got along with the bands really well. But he said it was basically mm. dictated to him, I believe, by um, Bruce, you know, dictating. You know, Just this, reading ad yeah, copy. Yeah, that basically, written. basically, I mean, we, <laughs> yeah. we've already established that he was quite good at that. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I, and he's like, I'm, it's, I'm not, I'm a little ashamed, but, you know, I'll, I'll admit that to you. So he was kind of like a stenographer in a way. And, you know, but mm. but they, they, they found a really good ally in, in Everett True. I mean, he, was, he liked to party with the bands. He liked to kind of, I think he really, he ultimately released an, a sub-pop single. It's called, like, Donuts, or you'd have to look it up on the internet. But um, <laughs> anyway. I, Maybe I'll edit it in a, a little after. Yeah, yeah, but he, re- you know, so he was very intertwined with that whole scene, and obviously, you know, uh, became close with Kurt and Courtney, and, and wrote a Nirvana book of his own later on. Everett True, God, you really can't do better for a, a nom nom de plume. Yeah, I, though I guess it does kind of immediately make me uh, uh, at least raise one eyebrow at the uh, the the veracity of the, the reports handed <laughs> in by a journalist who just decides to change their pen name to literally True. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a little bit like, yeah, don't worry about it. But you can still find uh, there are scans of the mel- it was in Melody Maker. Uh, you can still find scans of that online uh, with all the. I mean, I remember Tad was in there, which is one of the bands that was Tad. Yes, yes, Tad. That was one of the bands that really you were talking about the whole redneck backwoodsman image i mean that tad was that taken to an extreme i mean tad the guy tad doyle was you know they billed him as a 300 400 pound like me eating backwoodsman ed gein loving like serial killer wannabe and you know he was just like a regular guy i think pavitt pointed out that he had performed at the nixon white house or something in the band you know (laughs) but but they but and 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 the band themselves i think it really they they said it kind of painted them into a corner making them seem like these crazed backwoodsmen which they were most definitely not so um Uh but they excelled at 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 playing up i mean sub pop really excelled at playing that sort of stuff up yeah Mm -hmm. Well, it it worked. Um, especially worked for Mud Honey. Uh, they started playing very big shows. They put out their uh, debut self titled album. Uh, I believe it's Azarad who describes it as more of the same, but not quite as good. <laughs> uh, but I think the band uh, the would buzz, agree with yeah. that sentiment. Yeah. From what, from what yeah. I recall, uh, it was yes, more of the same, but not as good. Yeah. Uh, but the buzz broke through to the mainstream U.S. press. Uh, especially, you know, under the the grunge the grunge name and the uh, Seattle sound uh, theme, and uh, immediately, you know, A and R guys start coming to Seattle, sniffing around uh, and trying to find more more of these type of guys, new type of new type of guy, <laughs> new type just, of dropped. Guy just dropped. Yes, uh, and he's wearing a plaid shirt, 
and a wallet chain. Um, so yeah, should we listen to a tune from Mud Honey by Mud Honey? I mean, if we're doing more of the same but not as good, should we do the sickness song off this record? Yeah. Here comes the sickness. <laughs> this <laughs> yes. is a great song. Keep it sick. Um, I don't think I didn't include it in my book, but um, I remember talking to Patty Schemmel, who was later in Hole. She yes. was like, these early Mud Honey songs, she's like, I love them, but they were kind of sexist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, this yeah. is uh, not the best representation of women in these songs. Here comes sickness, and yeah. Sure. Yeah. I feel like I saw a tweet recently that was like, I love I love rock songs. I love rock songs that are like uh, I love when a a, a a woman is just described as a, a a terrible demon that you're hopelessly attracted to. <laughs> a succubus. Yeah, just a, a, a goblin, a female goblin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I agree with you, uh, but I guess to give them an ounce of credit, uh, everybody in the in the Mud Honey songs are, are uh, described <laughs> kind of uh, disgustingly, including the bleak singer. I guess. So. I guess. So. But um, <laughs> that, that was one woman's perspective. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, another person with a, kind of an amazing book, uh, Patty Schimmel's. We've covered Patty Schimmel's uh, book on the show. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah, the Hit So Hard it's documentary is great. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, I, Here Comes Sickness to me sounds like maybe the closest. I know, obviously, like Guns N' Roses' whole aesthetic basically gets knocked out by grunge but that sounds like you tweak a couple of like guitar sounds or like some like arrangements and like that could be a Guns N' Roses song. Well, there's a lot of I mean there's kind of a lot of overlap I mean Green River half that band were I mean the Steve and uh, you know Steve and Jeff were were I mean they wore bandanas they had an Aerosmith <laughs> aesthetic it was very mm-hmm. proto Guns N' Roses sort of stuff I mean you look at the I mean there's some pictures I have in my book of them, they look like they're glam rockers. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Mark Mark Arm was the more punk end of things, but they were like, you know, wearing, wearing, uh, I mean, I think there was, there was a, you know, part where Mark was talking about how uh, uh, Jeff and Matt would wear like a pink tank top on stage and stuff. And <laughs> yeah, he's like, that guy had a lot of balls to do that, like in the, in the, in the <laughs> punk rock scene, you know? Sure. Uh, and of course, uh, continual fascination of this podcast. Duff McKagan oh, came yeah, out of Duff. the Seattle punk scene like half, like half a generation before these guys. Yeah, something like that. Uh, I, I was gonna say if that's one that that sounds even more of like a bridge to the stuff that would become like I don't know how to describe it, like radio grunge of like a mm. few you know two years after that, two or three years after this. This came out in 1989. So like I, you can hear hear what would then become like uh, uh, 
more palatable to the masses coming emerging from this. Mm-hmm. The yeah, so sorry, this album comes out. Uh, it, it it sounds like the hype cycle of Mud Honey and just grunge in general was like qu- quite fast. Um, in in the sense that basically immediately, which is I guess, I guess is the cycle of all trends in a way, and the more intensity of the the hype, the quicker the burnout. But you know, it it seems like as as soon as they became a thing. Uh, you know, in- the British press turned on them uh, and called them harmless history students. <laughs> not the which it's like the ultimate British burn. insult. Yeah, His- harmless students. history students, yes. students, lads, uh, uh, little lads in uh, in yeah. in blazers, short pants and short blazers. Pants. <laughs> but but originally, Mud Honey were supposed to be the sub-pop band. It was the band that everyone thought was going to break through and then it ended up being, of course, Nirvana. So, yeah. but uh, they did, they did. I mean, I guess we'll get to this part. They did save sub-pop with their album. We'll get to that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to yeah. step on Molly's lines. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, it's yeah. all it's all good. Um, yeah, the, you, you know, they've, they've got, you've got people moving to Seattle uh, and playing Seattle music, even though you're not from there. Um, Which they could tell God. because, again, there were only like 20 of them. The, yeah, they're, they're like, I don't recognize you at like at the bar. Like, I would have known you. Like, who are you? And it's like, well, I'm a Seattle, I'm a Seattle musician. It's like, okay. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, the sub pop guys were definitely, uh, they were falling, it seemed to be falling victim to the, the classic uh, late, uh, indie label problem of just uh getting more excited about the releases uh than the accounting uh they were doing way more marketing than bean bean counting and uh it seemed like they were hemorrhaging money they were it uh, sounds like a lot of bands didn't have contracts and so in order to like keep them on sub pop they were handing out cash advances that they certainly couldn't afford at one point they were trying to set up like a major distribution deal through cbs and then that fell through um so they were just like burning through cash uh, to the level that uh, Mud Honey had a second album recorded and it kept getting delayed because Sub Pop said that they couldn't afford to release it. Um, but then they got pissed because they like flew out the Afghan wigs to try to mm. lure them into signing them. So it just sounds like it was a, a real real bummer of a financial situation. At one point, the uh, Sub Pop guys tried to raise... This is a classic in introducing uh, trope, which is that if you're so broke... What do you do? You sell T-shirts. Uh, <laughs> I I think it was um, Blur had to do that at one point. Uh, they sold T-shirts that say, "What part of we have no money? Don't you understand?" <laughs> With Again, a sub plop like, on the front. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, they were also very, they were also as uh, you know Bruce Pabu would point out they were also quite generous. With the bands, like Mark Arm would come to him and say, I need to pay my rent or something, and they would give him money. But I mean, usually it was for drugs, but not rent. But, <laughs> you know, yeah. and uh, they knew that. But, you know, they were, they were good to the bands in that way. Um, but it was just a con, it was kind of a Ponzi scheme. But uh, I mean, it worked out well, ultimately. Right. I mean, they, they kept it going long enough to, for it to work out. Exactly. Exactly. That's what that is the goal of the Ponzi scheme. Is yes. like if I can just get this next thing, right. like we'll all be we'll all be liquid. Uh, so congratulations to them on uh, on running maybe the old, one of the few permanently successful Ponzi schemes. <laughs> also, it's funny about to think about the T-shirts as like a last ditch effort to raise some money, considering like how many sub pop T-shirts, uh, you know, we're here in Brooklyn, Molly. Do you think exist in our 
zip code right now. Well, I, I was going to say, uh, you, you know, in terms of, or, or do you mean just like some new ones that are being bought? Because I actually looked up based on the, the prevalence of T-shirts in this chapter. I was like, what's an original uh, 80s sub pop T-shirt going for? And I saw one on eBay for like $1,600. Wow. Well, maybe that's like actual vintage, but you know, the, the classic black with the white and black logo thing. I mean, if you yeah. go out on a Saturday a or Sunday, it is impossible not to see one here. So yeah. The it's t-shirt a, building business is good, still doing well for them. It's a good brand, you know. T-shirts are t-shirts aren't, aren't people. You can you can rely on them. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to wait for a t-shirt to like record a good second album. Just, <laughs> it's just a shirt. You put it on your back and you're done. Uh, uh, we should put that on a shirt. Yeah, that that is a that is a t-shirt logo unto itself. <laughs> mm-hmm. That which is very that's I feel like that's very sub pop, in a way. Um, yeah, so they are they are totally screwed money wise there's what sounds like a terrible interaction where uh steve turner shows up at the office one day says that uh uh i think it was pavitt promised them like five thousand dollars um and like what when is when when can we get that check man and uh uh poneman just like starts like hysterically laughing and then eventually crying like it just sounds like he's so <laughs> unbelievably stressed and and freaking out about the financial situation that it leave it like it then freaks steve turner out and it, he, steve basically is like i can't trust you guys to like keep running shit like it sounds like you have like a serious problem um and based on that uh mud honey said that they you know it was time to leave it's it doesn't sound like it was acrimonious like the departure of, of uh mud honey from sub pop but it just sounds like it was a, a vo- maybe a vote of no confidence in in the business model uh at that time but they said you know we, you know we have the album we'll we'll put out every good boy deserves fudge first um, which mm, I'm not. I don't know how I feel about that album title. Thought, <laughs> thoughts? <laughs> well, it's it's the musical notes, so there's at least yes. that, at least they can uh, point to that. Yeah, yes, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, how you remember the musical staff? I remember that from knowing music. But. It was every every good boy dessert, uh, does does fine when I was a kid. I don't okay. know what when they got rid of fudge, but downgrade <laughs> to me. Yeah, fudge is funner, more fun. It is more fun. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, but that um, should we listen to? Yeah, but oh, that was the oh, that was the album that that saved Sub Pop. They were getting like the lights turned off, and and you know they were they were they were on death's door basically. And then this album came out and did quite well for them. Kept the lights on. Um, do you have any favorites off Every Good Boy Deserves Fudge? Yeah, I really love that song. Good enough. Uh, let's do good enough. Hey, the Maracas are back. Hey. Kind of a, a, a sweeter, gentler side of Mud Hunter. Yeah. Definitely. Never for a second that I... Might even call that uh, that drum beat jaunty. 
You're really <laughs> digging into the uh, rock critic yep. lexicon there. That's good enough off of uh, Every Good Boy Deserves Fudge. Uh, the album that saves some pop. And then, of course, I think it's yeah. also outlined in this cha- chapter that they did get a uh, sign a, a, a sweet uh, Hail Mary deal on the uh, back end of some uh, Nirvana sales, which uh, couldn't have hurt. Yeah, talk, talk about uh, de- just deals. Uh, maybe one of the, I feel like this has got to be one of the best deals of all time is that uh, Sub Pop signed Nirvana, put out Bleach, and then they immediately said that they were defecting to Geffen. Uh, but they still owed two albums to Sub Pop, and Geffen bought them out, uh, I think, for some cash, and then gave uh, uh, three three points on the listing price of Nirvana's next two albums, aka 3% of the listing price. Uh, we all know what the album after Bleach was. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that I just... I don't even... I don't know if they realized how... what kind of deal they were making, but uh, nice job. Yeah, they made some very savvy mistakes. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> they yes. failed up. Yeah. But, yep. Um, I mean, Mark, yes. it's not really covered in this book, but, you know, as we're like winding down the sub pop and 80s career of, of Mud in a Year, was, the, was there a sense then that the of the potential for the, the next, you know, for, for this whole Seattle thing to be uh, that commercially viable? I mean, obviously not as stratospherically commercially viable as, as Nevermind, but that, that, you know, that Sub Pop would still want to keep as many of these bands as possible, that they, that they could have, like, any one of these could be a gold mine or anything like that? I mean, I don't really think there... I mean, there, were, there was kind of the, the thought that it had peaked in 88, 89, you know, early on, and uh, this wasn't, this wasn't like, a viable long-term thing. Obviously, you know, Nir, you know Nirvana's initial goal was to, you know, sell, like, uh, as much as Sonic Youth's Goo or something, which wasn't like a mm-hmm. Tre- mm-hmm. tremendous amount of of albums, so uh, they had pretty modest goals, or at least publicly publicly stated modest goals. I think they, you know, Kurt Cobain was famously very interested in in fame and uh, recognition and things of that nature, and doing mm-hmm. doing well mm-hmm. despite his reputation. So, um, yeah, it, I, it didn't seem. The whole thing, if you told somebody in the Seattle scene in 88 or 89 that this was going to explode a couple of years later, well, maybe they would have believed you. I don't know. Enough MDMA in your system, you'd probably believe anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds great, man. Let's do it. Grunge for well, everybody. Yeah, being in one of those, being one, one of those uh, dive bars just uh, blitzed out on MDMA, being, being like, I swear to God, man. One of these days, one of the bands <laughs> up here on the stream, quadruple platinum. <laughs> yeah. Everyone will be feeling. I mean, there that were some. Bug. There were some bands. I mean, like Mother Love Bone, which is a, a grunge band that that was um, predated Green River. You know, uh, Andy Wood was famously the the lead singer of that, and he was like a rock star in his own mind, and would play to the. I mean, they would play these clubs, and there would be hardly anybody there, but he would play as if there was like a. A balcony and be oh, hello mm-hmm. Seattle mm-hmm. and uh, I mean he he tragically died of a, a heroin overdose but um or at least the results of heroin and um 
yeah, people people saw them. I mean, they were super ambitious. That was the thing about Stone and Jeff is that they were seen as the ambitious ones, which was not cool in mm-hmm. Seattle. It was not cool to express that you wanted to succeed, that you wanted to be on top of things. So mm-hmm. um, that you wanted to, you know, chart and sell records and be Aerosmith. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, yeah, that, that leads us to, you know, sort of the end of Mud Honey's indie life. They were, uh, seemingly one of the last bands in Seattle that was not signed to a major. Um, and they ended up going with, uh, I think it was Warner Brothers, thinking, uh, who who had the foresight to sign Devo? Uh, hey, that's a good heuristic in my book. <laughs> I think that's a good, I think that's a, if you're going to measure a major by by anybody, just, I, I think that's actually not, not so bad. Um, but, you know, Sub Pop was kind of never, they basically said it's never quite the same. Uh, Bruce Pabbitt said, I realized that I was in a very sick business, <laughs> which, you know, I know, I know, Mark, you were talking before, just like, it sounds like the, that Sub Pop was like a, a generous label and that, uh, it was maybe, you know, we're, we're not, we're not bands and, uh, business guys were maybe more like family when you're here, right. when you're here, your family, but, uh, the, the, the cr- crushing fist of capitalism seems to come for everyone at, at the end of the day. And maybe, maybe Bruce and co were lucky that he didn't feel like he was part of the sick business until uh so many defections and uh you know budget issues or whatnot but um yeah he he, the rose covered glasses rose colored glasses came off for him um and then mud honey kind of never as i had said like they were never a huge commercial prospect to begin with um but never really took off uh and the analysis at the end of the chapter was basically uh the hard truth was that mud honey never equaled the greatness of touch me i'm sick uh, I will say though that they, I know. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, so, some of the earlier chapters end with people just being like, you know, we taught people that you can play whatever kind of music you want, man. And then you get to the end of this book, and it's like, yeah, we never really lived up to the promise of that <laughs> one really sick tune. It's like, wah, wah. Uh, yeah. Well, I will say if 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 we're looking for some up uh, upsides, and maybe Mark has some opinions as well, or uh, some thoughts as well, um, that. One thing that I would say is that Mud Honey are still together and releasing music. They are, and they're back on Sub Pop. They yeah. after the major label deal ended, they went back to Sub Pop. So and Mark Arm is like the manager of the Sub Pop warehouse. He's the guy packaging those T-shirts and and or at least <laughs> telling people to package the T-shirts. I don't I don't know I don't know how dirty he gets his hands, but um no sure, he, sure. he's he's in charge of the the warehouse. So it is kind of a a family in that way. So um. And then, and then they let them, you know, they're a very understanding employer when you, when you want to go on tour. Uh, Sub Pop will let you do that. Uh, I would say one other thing is that, um, I, one other thing I know about Mud Honey is that they have one of the funniest hidden tracks of all time. Uh, you know how, you know, when, when CDs existed, you would see the track list and mm-hmm. then there'd be an extra hidden track uh, that on their 1995 disc, My Brother the Cow. Uh, it plays all the tracks, and then the hidden track is the entire album backwards. Mm, yeah, they were, they were, they were that that album had a lot of like like techno and like a lot of interstitial like weirdness and stuff, which I kind of remember the band thinking was stupid now, but I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> there were there were some I mean, drugs going on back then too. So sure, um, sure, yeah. Uh, 
that's still a funny joke to me. I'll, uh, I'll go out on playing one song from their... Uh, I'll go out and playing the entire Hidden Track yeah. album. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll listen to the entire 1995 <laughs> album backwards. I'll go out and playing one song from their uh, most recent album, Digital Garbage, uh, from their recent album, Digital Garbage. This is Kill Yourself Live, which I believe is about... Uh, supposed to be about uh, like social media. Yeah. <laughs> always you know like recognizing when some of these bands because it's not all of them that have survived and keep putting on that's the true the, the, I, the yeah I could, i'm pretty sure that they're working on a new album i feel like i saw on, on instagram or social media or something i mean i could be wrong but I'm, i think they've been recording during the pandemic Ooh, they're breaking the key the key tenant of the seattle sound yeah i hear keyboards uh, yes. keyboard tenant well, but you know, this, this isn't grunge. <laughs> Give it 20 years. Book. You grow, you, you evolve, you yeah, add a keyboard. Exactly. Although, if we're talking about all the influences, that sounds very like Farfisa Arf- organ to me, which would be like the Nuggets throwback. Yeah. And also, this kind of sounds like gut feeling. When did the lyrics start? I haven't heard this song in a while. Yeah. You sure you're playing the right track? I don't know. Yes. <laughs> Okay. I, well, I believe so. <laughs> the sonic representation of social yeah. media. This is how I feel right. when I yeah. scroll through Twitter. When I kill oh, there we go. Myself blind, <laughs> I got so many where, where do you guys come in on um, Mark Arm's voice? What, on his voice? Yeah, what do you think of his voice? I like I like it a lot. I lo- I think it's cool. Uh, I like that it even when he's doing like the real like grungy I don't know nasty lyrics. It sounds like he's telling a joke, which I enjoy. Right. Yeah, it's kind of droll for being uh, yeah, very like, droll. Still sort of uh, uh, yeah. gr- gritty but droll is my, yeah, I mean, my that, official That was assessment. one of the reasons that Green River, one of the many reasons that Green River broke up is that Jeff and Stone, being the professional half of the band, wanted Mark Arm to take singing lessons. And he's like, oh, right. yes. no, right. I'm not doing that. So uh, <laughs> that's, when you, that's when you know it's over. Yeah, when they want you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, please lead singer to take singing lessons. Yeah, that's what I'll say. But um, obviously he never did. Because he basically sounds the same. Yeah. Yeah. You said uh, it sounds I, good. Yeah, I think it's good. Uh, is that the, Molly? Is that the end of the? Uh, that's that, that's the end of uh, Mud Honey, as told by Michael Azrad for Our Bank of Your Life. Mark, while we have you here and we're talking about this era, I mean, I, I feel like this is a very uh, broad question, but you know, is there anything like that we touched on about like grunge or the era or the popularity in here? Maybe a, a popular misconception that, that you would want to dispel or any other uh, de- details to this that you, you would want to add to this part of the narrative? Hmm. There are lots of misconceptions about grunge. I mean, the you know, one of them is that it killed hair metal, which, you know, if, if you look, look back at the historical record, hair metal was kind of 
on its way out at that, you know, Bang Tango and and all those bands. And but I mean, the bit the bigger ones survive. I mean, obviously, like they're they're all the it didn't really kill hair metal. There's there's still Poison and Bon Jovi and mm-hmm. Def Leppard. And I mean, the bigger the bigger ones more popular ones certainly survived and they were already like waning at that point. I mean, there's so many myths about Nirvana and Kurt Cobain that is yeah. a subject of another podcast altogether, I guess that, you know, he was this morose, like, I mean, that, that's the thing about all these guys and they're, they are mostly guys is that they were very <laughs> funny, very funny guys. I mean, Kurt Cobain was funny. I mean, Kurt Cobain famously uh, lived with uh, Matt Lucan of the of of Mudhoney, uh, the bassist, and 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 also of the Melvins, and uh, they had pet turtles, or maybe Kurt had pet turtles. <laughs> I, I think at one point Matt Lucan put like a line down, like a tape line down their their apartment to delineate uh, whose side was which. Tur- so because ah. they were doing classic sitcom plots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but there, yeah, I mean, I think that that really comes through for the in this mud honey chapter. If nothing else, is that the mud honey guys were they were having fun. Oh yeah, they were yeah, they, they, were, were, they were just having they fun were out playing there good rockish music and uh, drunk and fun for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, with all that, unless Molly, you have any final thoughts about this? I, I I would just say that just mentioning Nirvana that it is it makes a lot of sense in the narrative structure of this book that you kind of have to do a hard cut off when Nirvana happens, and I think it is just for. Mark, as you were saying, that there are so many, there's so much baggage wrapped up in like the discussion and thinking of and talking about Nirvana uh, that it does come. You know, I've talked earlier in this in, in our discussion of this book as uh, of like these kind of uh, other bands that aren't in the book that kind of loom over the background of it. REM being the big one, mm-hmm. uh, one of the big ones talked about in the, the early ones, and Nirvana is kind of like I don't want to say like a wall at the end of this, but it is just like maybe like a right angle that everything goes in a different direction yeah. with when, when they, yeah. when they break. And so it, it makes sense like narrative why why you have to cut it, cut it off so much, but it, it is, I think it, this is the job of, of uh, probably the Nirvana book or the, the grunge book to, to say, to, to discuss how it is like a continuation of all the things going on in here in as much as it is a radical departure. Yeah. I mean, all these bands, I mean, I just, you know, like I just pointed out, Matt Lucan was, was, yeah. uh, was, uh, you know, his roommate, Kurt Cobain's roommate and Kurt mm-hmm. Cobain was, you know, although the Melvins would not say that he was supposedly the roadie for the Melvins, although mm-hmm. Buzz Osborne yeah. says he was not a roadie because he could bar- <laughs> barely lift an amp. So, um, <laughs> yeah. well, it sounds like we're going to need to do a, a ro- yeah. roll the tape on that one. Yeah, but yeah. Um, that was, <laughs> I'm sorry, that was the it, in the uh, in the book that when they when he when Azarad introduces Nirvana, he he describes them as. A, a very short, scrawny man and a very tall guy walked into the office one day. Yeah, <laughs> this was Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic. Right, uh, Nirvana, the story of a, a small man and a big man. <laughs> yes, and then I'm, and I a think, lot of I different think drummers. Role is medium sized yeah, yeah. man. <laughs> well, he seems he seems regular size. I don't know. Um, well, with all that, let's move confidently into the end part of this episode. Mark, thank you very much for joining yeah. us and talking about Mud Honey. Uh, obviously, your book, uh, Everybody Loves Our Town, The Oral History of Grunge. If you enjoyed like a taste of uh, the, the, the taste of this narrative that you get here, uh, Everyone Loves Our Town will have much a much fuller story yeah. of, of all this in it. You'll get the, the whole story from the early 80s. Uh, starting with bands like the U-Men, going all the way up to 
you know, past Kurt Cobain's death and uh, well, it's basically tragedy from that point on, but it gets, it gets (laughs) really dark at the end, but uh, the, the beginning is very fun. Even the middle is fun. Some of the end is fun too, but there's a lot of darkness and, and despair toward the end in particular, but I think it's worth the journey. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, Is there anything else uh, that you would like to plug? Uh, well, I'm, 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 as you pointed out at the top of the show, I'm doing a totally different thing now. I'm working for this tech and culture site called InputMag.com, Input, mm-hmm. and uh, I edit features there, and uh, we put out a lot of excellent stuff about tech and culture and style. I mean, I'm not so into the style thing. I'm not a hype beast, um, but <laughs> but if you're into that, that's also there. Yeah, if you're into hype beast, if you're into sneaker culture, if you're into tech, if you're... Uh, you know, a young hipster kid, you know, streetwear person. I don't know what, yeah, hype beast, I guess. Then, then you'll yeah. like it. And if you're into tech and phones and, and, uh, we just did a great story. I would urge everyone to read on the guy with the most expensive Pokemon collection in the world. It's like $10 million. <gasps> yeah. I think I saw that guy getting passed around. Yeah, uh, it's a big story. On, on media. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll check that it out. It's a great story. One of our writers did. So, um, yeah, check out inputmag.com and um, I'll, I'll link the the Pokemon story. In this yeah, or I'll check the site because this will be coming out. I guess next week. I don't know. I'll fi- I'll figure yeah. out. I'll 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 link input somewhere in the yeah, description. It'll still be there a week from now. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, well, it was a pleasure being on the show. I thank you both for taking the time. This seems like a, a what are there thirteen bands in the in the book? Thirteen bands yes. in the book. This is number twelve. So this will be the uh, the penultimate regular one, and then we're coming back next week with. Beat happening, and then should I should I tease it or confirm it? We just yeah, I think I mentioned it in the yeah, episode. Yeah, you, and then you we, did. We uh we did talk with Michael Azarad yesterday, so there will be an epilogue episode that features an interview with the author. Uh, and yeah, that's that is our series. Uh, for my plugs, uh, well, speaking of uh, commerce, culture, uh, technology, uh. You've you've been hearing me plug at the end of the last five. Of course, it is the Frequency One Festival, a streaming music and podcast festival uh, coming at you live from Brooklyn to your computers, laptops, pet iPads, devices of all kind. Uh, we have five bands, five podcasts, all streaming live on Frequency dot live f r q n c y dot live, June fifth. Uh, $20 gets you all of the shows. It's Chapa Trap House. It's uh, We Hate Movies. It's Tinder Live. It's Throwing Fits. It's uh, Episode 1. It is Every Time I Die. It is Pom Pom Squad. It is Zola Jesus. It is Downtown Boys. And it is Stay Inside. Live June 5th. Streaming to you. Frequency.live. FRQNCY.live. Please check it out. That is my plug, as always. And Molly? Um, you know, I don't have anything in in particular to plug. I'll go plugless. No, plug a, a plugless app. Well, then, of course, you can send us an email at andintroducingpod at gmail dot com or follow us on Twitter at andintropod. Our SoundCloud is as always at soundcloud dot com slash and dash intro dash pod. Uh, rate or review us on iTunes. Uh, haven't got any ratings or reviews about uh, the the uh, We Podicano series. So uh, if you've had good good time listening to this, uh, shout us out there. I, but only uh, if it, only if it's good. If you're having a bad time, I don't want to hear about it. Yes, <laughs> but more importantly, you should uh, you should tell your friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, call up uh, your your 
weird podcast friends who who work at the uh, the podcast scene in one town over and say, "Hey, there's this hot new sound coming out of New York that you need to uh, that you need to uh, profile or something." I I don't know. I'm trying. To, I'm doing. I'm doing a tortured metaphor about zine culture. Maybe here. Everett yeah. True anyway. can write about it. Yes. Get, most. <laughs> oh, get, get Everett True on get the Everett True on the horn. Six pack of of Bud Light, and he's he's there. And he Great. can just make yeah. He can say whatever he wants about us as long as we uh, sound cool. But until then, we will be back next week for the final chapter in the main episodes of the Weep Hatakana series. That is staying in the Pacific Northwest for Beat Happening. We'll talk to you next week on the next and intro. Deuces.